Welcome to the sermon ministry of River Community Church, a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana. Our purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Let us listen to the word of God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. This is the word of the Lord. Seated. Well, good morning again. Uh, if you uh, were not with us last week, uh, we have just begun a series on Genesis 1 through 3, which we are calling The Reason Why. And the reason that we're calling it The Reason Why is because in the first three chapters of Genesis, I believe you can discover the reason why for pretty much everything in this world, for the reason it is uh, the way it is, both the good and the bad. And so as we try to live in this world and make sense of this world, the best place to figure out the reason why the world is the way it is is to know what is taught in Genesis 1 through 3. Last week, we started by discovering the very fundamental truth that the reason why for everything, the reason why for existence itself, is God. And we saw the four attributes of God that are taught to us in Genesis 1.1, that God alone is necessary, complete, free, and sovereign. And it is those truths that, no Siri, I don't want to talk to you. Uh, <laughs> sovereign uh, is, uh, is the reason that we have the existence that we have. And it is the reason that we know uh, what we are to be. We are to be people who know God and find our joy in Him. For until we find the reason why for our existence in God, we have committed ourselves to a reason that will not satisfy and will not go the distance. This week, we get to go to verse 2. And we'll talk about it in just a second. I also want to remind you that Genesis has a, a lot of questions in it, a lot of kind of in-house uh, topics and conversations that, that come up, and I'm sure that you want to uh, learn and talk about all of those subjects, uh, things like uh, how old is the earth, how does uh, the Bible and science uh, connect with each other, how does the Bible uh, relate to ancient Near Eastern cultures, and other questions. We're going to deal with those in a little less um, pulpity environment. Uh, with our Wednesday night program that actually is going to start this Wednesday, January 16th. We'll have a meal at 6.15, and then the uh, grown-ups, the adults, are going to have a conversation where we're going to look at some of those questions that we have in Genesis. And I hope that you'll uh, make that a part of your weekly schedule because I think it'll be very stimulating and encouraging for all of us. All right, so let me share a little bit about what happened this week. Sometimes uh, sermons take time to figure out. Other times, God just kind of says, here it is. And that's what happened this week. And it happened completely by my surprise. So Thursday this week, 
I uh, came into the office and was waiting for a lunch appointment when a, uh, a woman showed up in our, our lobby. And uh, she, was, she was crying. Uh, she, she was distressed. Uh, she had a, a, a panicky uh, nature about herself. She was in a, a very awful place, you could just see from, from looking at her. And so she said she needed to speak to the pastor. So we sat down in our conference room, and uh, she was weeping, and uh, she was sharing that uh, she uh, has just gotten herself out of uh, an abusive relationship, a physically abusive relationship, uh, and in doing so, she has lost everything. Uh, she was living with this man. She was not married, but she had to get out of there. And so she had nothing, and all she had is her mom in Alabama, and she needed food, and she needed help to get herself to, to Alabama. She needed a tank of gas. And so we talked for a while, and uh, it was clear that she was there. She was afraid. She was destitute. She was alone. She uh, was, the, was there as a result of, of both bad choices that she has made and bad choices that she had no control over. She was devastated in 2016 from the flood, and she was desperate. And so it brings, I think, a question straight to the front. People like this exist. And you probably have experiences with some of those feelings, some of those conditions, though maybe not as uh, outwardly so. But it does ask it does kind of present a theological question, at least as a pastor, I have to deal with it. And I'm sure whenever these situations come to you, you have to deal with it. Does God truly care about our individual lives? Can we truly hope that things will get better? Can we trust what the Bible says when it says all things will work out for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Can we as Christians in a world full of sins and snares have true confidence that we will finish well? Can we? I believe verse 2 is our answer to those questions. Verse 2 gives us the reason why we can believe God is invested in our individual lives. We can believe in hope. We can trust that God will work all things together for the good. We can believe that we will finish well. The reason why that we can, the reason is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives us the reason why we can always hope. Today we are going to see this by seeing the three ways that the Holy Spirit works in the world. My purpose today is very simple. I want us to look at Genesis 1 and see how the Holy Spirit works in creating the world and recognize this fundamental connection. That the same Holy Spirit that is at work in creation, is at work 
in every believer in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so what we see the Holy Spirit accomplish in Genesis 1, he is going to be accomplishing in your lives as infallibly as he accomplished it in Genesis 1. So please join me as we look carefully at the three ways the Holy Spirit works in the world and in us, believers of Jesus Christ. We're going to see these three ways. I'm going to give them to you quickly. We see one way is his being actively present. We'll also see that he is working by applying the word of God. And third, we will see that he is working by completing what he starts. Let us focus on that first way, his being actively present. Let's read verse 2 again to make it fresh in our mind. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Just to give us a little context and overview, Last week, we looked at verse 1, where we saw God's initial act of creating the material universe. Verse 2 follows up that initial creation of the universe by describing what we're going to call the initial conditions of this embryonic creation. The initial conditions are that it was um, uh, without form and void, that there was darkness, and that it was watery. These are the initial conditions of the creation that God made in verse 1, and they are the conditions that God is going to address for accomplishing his purpose for creation, which is to make the earth a habitable place for his image bearers to reflect his glory. So that is what we have kind of at the, at the textual level. Now, I think it's interesting to look at the condition of the creation that is described in verse 2. And I'm going to teach you just a a little bit of Hebrew. Those words, formless and void, or formless and empty, uh, in the Hebrew is this phrase. Tohu vabohu. Tohu vabohu. Now, I want to share, that's a very fun thing to say. So let's all say it together. Tohu vabohu. In the beginning, the earth was tohu vabohu. That means without form and void, or empty as as other translations go. Now, tohu vabohu is a strange thing to be told about the creation. And there have been some scholars who have looked at those words tohu vabohu and have thought that there is something going on there that requires some additional explanation. They look at the words tohu vabohu, and they say, you know what? Those words are rare. They show up somewhere else in Scripture. They show up also in Jeremiah chapter 4, 23 to 27, where we read these words. I looked on the earth, and behold, it was without form and void, tohu vabohu, and to the heavens, and they had no light. I looked, and behold, the fruitful land was a desert. And all its cities were laid in ruins before the Lord, before his fierce anger. And so there is a group of scholars who say, you know what? There's tohu vabohu here in Jeremiah, and then there's tohu vabohu here in Genesis 1-2. Do we use Jeremiah to understand what Genesis 1-2 is saying? 
If so, Genesis 1-2, does that mean that the creation in 1-2 has already experienced a, a judgment? Because tohu vabohu has been uh, connected to God's anger and judgment in Jeremiah. And so some people think when they read Genesis that there has already been some sort of judgment that has happened between 1-1 and 1-2. The people who, who posit this then suggest that there's a gap of time between 1-1 and 1-2 that we just don't know about. So is this a, a valid reading of the text? I'm going to have to answer in the negative. No. It is not a likely translation. They will, they will try and translate verse 2 by saying that the earth became without form and empty. But it is very difficult to justify in the context to take the verb was and put it in the tense of became. So on a textual level, that doesn't seem to be very solid. Next, we have to recognize the difference between the Jeremiah context and the Genesis context. If you're not tohu vabohu and then become tohu vabohu, that's judgment. But if you're starting tohu vabohu and going forward, that's not necessarily a judgment at all. I mean, Jupiter is still tohu vabohu. But that's okay. It's still giving glory to God. That's not the purpose of Jupiter, to be inhabited by image bearers. So tohu vabohu is not uh, words that just because they exist, we must say they are negative. They're just descriptive. They have a neutral value in Genesis 1-2. So I do not think that the so-called gap theory, the view that in Genesis 1-2 we have evidence of a judgment, really works. Now, with that behind us, let's ask ourselves a more constructive question. How does creation develop? How does this creation that starts uh, watery, dark, without form and void or empty, develop? We have to recognize that this is a, a, an area that uh, everybody has an answer for. You know, We all have a, a picture of creation, whether we're uh, uh, scriptural or not, in our, in our thinking, of tohu vabohu, of a, of a time when creation seemed uninhabitable. And so what is our reason? How do we understand this? Uh, there are really kind of two groups of, uh, of theories, uh, and they go back a long time. The first is the idea that creation developed through God overpowering a resistant, rebellious creation. That is uh, an idea that, that kind of belongs in the, in the uh, framework of, of a dualism. We have spirit and we have matter, and they're, they're in, cont, uh, in tension, and one has to win the battle over the other. Uh, the second is something that maybe we're more familiar with in our, in our day and age, is the idea that the creation just was left alone and developed on its own. Okay? That idea uh, is under the rubric of, of deism. Deism is the idea that God created everything, he got the ball rolling, but it was really forces within creation that progressed it forward. Another description of that is, is just naturalism. Naturalism doesn't usually uh, see the need for a, a God beginning everything, but the, the fundamental commitment of naturalism is that there's a natural cause and explanation for absolutely everything that happened. And so the creation progressed 
through natural causes, with a power that was either given to it or is latent inside of it. And so those are kind of two ideas that are, are out there. Verse 2 denies both. Denies both this idea of dualism, of conflict, and also denies this view of deism or naturalism. And we're going to see why. Let's look first of all at the idea of overcoming chaos. Overcoming chaos, like a, a big battle. This goes way back. The creation uh, stories that the neighbors of Israel uh, would tell themselves generally had this idea that there is this fundamental primordial conflict that the triumphant God, who is the God that incidentally we all worship, uh, won. And so there's a, a story that's kind of the, the pattern of all of them uh, called Enuma Elish. And uh, the chief god in this, in this idea is called Marduk or Marduk. I don't know, Marduk, Marduk. I, I rarely ever speak of him. Uh, Marduk. And there's this uh, giant chaos monster called uh, Tiamat. And uh, Tiamat is kind of in control of everything, keeping everything in chaos. But Marduk is a great warrior. And he goes to battle against Tiamat. And he ends up destroying this, this, this uh, monster. And he uses the carcass of this monster to create the heavens and the earth. So the idea of, of these ancient myths or ancient uh, stories is that uh, God the God of, of whatever system you're in, won a battle, and he overcame. So that's, that's kind of this idea of overcoming. Really, that idea still exists today. Uh, if you're a fan of um, Star Wars, that's just the story of the Force, the light side and the dark, constantly fighting, one hoping to triumph over the other with exceptional lightsaber skills. But the whole idea of this dualism, this balance, who will win and, and, and how long will it take and what form will it take, is there. You can also find it in, in a sort of a, a, a fatalistic uh, idea of the world. There's just this con evil and good just are always going to exist. So I can't fight it. I can't win it. And so when we get overcome with, with temptation or with sin, sometimes we just take this idea that there's this chaos that I live in and I can't get out of, and there's no deliverance from it. Uh, that really boils down to a, a view that is enshrined in, in these old stories. But if we look at verse 2, and if we allow verse 2 to create our understanding you must see that there is absolutely no resistance presented by the creation to God. The creation exists to await and respond to the will of God and can do nothing but respond to it as God desires. The creation is a servant to God. There is no conflict. There is no challenge. That is the first thing that God wants us to see when he lets us see how uh, the creation exists underneath his sovereign hand. We also have to deal with that second idea of how the creation developed, which is uh, that deism idea or naturalism. I want to talk about those briefly. Again, the idea is, you know, God created everything and he got the ball rolling, but really it was left to the creation 
to become good on its own. Now think about that. We're getting really close to some pretty personal theology for a lot of people. God gets me going, but it's my job to make myself good all on my own. This idea of deism is not just affecting our understanding of creation. It is something that forms a lot of people's worldview. Uh, sociologists uh, from a couple years ago called Christian Smith and um, Marsha Witten interviewed uh, many, many young people in the church and found that the major worldview of our young people was what they termed moralistic, therapeutic deism. And here are the five tenets of moralistic, therapeutic deism. One, God created the world. Two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and most world religions. Three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when needed to resolve a problem. Five, good people go to heaven when they die. This these different sociologists discovered, was the operative theology of most of the young people going to church in this country. And I can tell you very clearly, there is only one statement in those five that has any truth from Scripture in it. And that is number one, that God created the world. All the other ones take us well away from the biblical God and the biblical worldview. But the idea of this is that God got us started and it's our job to make ourselves good. And as long as we're good, God gives us heaven. So as you can see, this viewpoint of deism is compelling. It exists. It is fundamentally the idea brought to creation that God helps those who help themselves. And I want to be very clear about this. God helps those who help themselves is not found in the Bible. That is a pagan theology of works. But deism is fundamentally the creation helps itself, and God will help the creation that helps itself. What we discover in verse 2 is a completely different picture. Creation can do nothing without the Spirit working. This is said to us explicitly by Jesus in John 6, 63. He says, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. It is a 100% dependent creation upon a God working upon it for it to develop or progress. Likewise, as his creatures, we are 100% dependent upon the Spirit working upon us and in us and through us. This is, this is what we must grasp as we look at verse 2. We have a creation that has no power in itself, is doing nothing, is simply laying there, tohu vabohu. 
And if you want proof that a creation without the Spirit working upon it will stay tohu vabohu, investigate the rest of the solar system. Jupiter, Mars, Venus, tohu vabohu. Because the work of the Spirit has never come upon them to develop them. The creation can do nothing. The Spirit must do everything. So what we must conclude then from verse 2 is that the creation develops because God is actively present by His Spirit. That is what verse 2b wants us to see. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, as we look at verse 2b, the, the, the idea of the word hovering is, a, is an interesting term. It's only used, I think, one other place. We translate it hovering, but it's rahaf. What, what does it mean that the Spirit is here hovering over the waters? What, what, what good is that? What is that, what is that to picture? Well, as the, 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 the Word of God, the Bible gives us inspired commentary by comparing Scripture to Scripture to make sense of what the Spirit is doing there. Because in one other place inside of the books of Moses, Deuteronomy chapter 32, we find the same author using the words tohu and the description of God being rahaf, being hovering in his presence. We read this in Deuteronomy chapter 32. He found him in a desert tohu land. And in the howling waste of the wilderness, he encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest that flutters rahaf over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. The Lord alone guided him. No foreign god was with him. This is God describing his relationship to Israel and how he made Israel a, a, a people of nothing, a people that was tohu, into his people. And so we have those same words being brought together at Genesis 1-2. What we, what we see by, by looking at these two passages together is that the hovering presence of the Spirit is like that eagle hovering over its nest. It is a description of the Spirit's care and attention It's loving concern for the creation like an eagle over its nest. It is there preparing the creation to develop from its tohu vabohu conditions. I think that there is actually an application knowing this from verse 1-2 about how the Spirit works. Because we see here that the Spirit is actively present even when we don't sense Him at all. He is caring. He is working. He is there. We go back uh, to this, this woman that I met on, on Thursday, and I think we can see the Spirit working. How was the Spirit preparing her? Why did she show up here? Why did she show up here? She said that the reason that she came here was because she has some kids in her neighborhood that play basketball. And they have told her what a friendly, helpful church this place is. She came here because she had been brought to a point of awareness 
that her life was destructive. She came to a, a place of brokenness. She said several times, my pride has kept me from coming here. I, I struggle with pride. She came here compelled with confession. She recognized that she was an enabler, that she was uh, in a sinful lifestyle. You see, the Lord was taking this person in a situation of tohu vabohu, absolute desolation, and was still working upon her, and at the right time, brought her into our presence. At the same time, what, what was the Spirit doing here? I want to let you guys all know something. I'm not here on Thursday. Thursday's my day off. I don't come in on Thursday. This is the only Thursday that I have been at this church probably in the last year. Why was I here? Because my wife is in Kansas City, and if I were at home, I'd have to do laundry. So, so I was here to get away from laundry. And yet... I'm here because she needs to speak to a pastor. This basketball court has been serving, making us known to a hurting world. That's the Holy Spirit actively present, even though we don't see the Spirit explicitly. And when she came, she was ready to talk to a pastor, not just about her physical needs, but about her spiritual needs. It was sweet that as I left to prepare the food, she went and grabbed a Bible and wanted to work through a Bible. And that's where I think we we make our best transition to the second way that God is working uh, by his Holy Spirit in the world and in us because we see that the Holy Spirit works by applying the Word of God. What is the Holy Spirit doing in Genesis 1? Did God just mention that his spirit was there in verse 2 as a curiosity? What is the role of the Holy Spirit in this book, in this chapter? The Holy Spirit is only mentioned explicitly in verse 2 in the activity of hovering. But I think if we we read the whole chapter and pay attention to what's happening, we discover that the Holy Spirit is applying God's commands, let there be light, let there be an expanse, all of these commands, to the creation. Now, why do I think that's a valid understanding? Look with me at verse 26. Verse 26, we are told, And God said, Let us make man in our image. There's a plural there. That plural has confused the Jewish community to this day. Who is the plural? Some people solve that plural by saying, well, God is speaking to the angels that are in a court around him. But we know that can't be the interpretation because it says, let us make man in our image. And man is not made in the image of angels. Man is only made in the image of God. So that cannot refer to an angelic court. Some try and say, well, you know what, that's just a a, a majestic plural. God is so big and so wonderful that sometimes he has to speak to himself in plural. That, to me, is stretching. That is is finding an answer to avoid a clear conclusion. Verse 2 gives us a subject for God to be talking to. There is God and there is the Spirit of God. 
Those seem to be who are, at minimum, in communication here. As the New Testament develops, we recognize that Christ is there too. But the Spirit and God are the people that are speaking. That's what the us is about. And so when we look at that phrase, let us make man in our image, we come to this reality. The Spirit is there working with God to make the creation. God is giving the commands, and the Spirit is down at the ground level making it happen. We get uh, this said to us explicitly in Psalm 104, verse 30. When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. The spirit is there working in creation. So what we see here is that the spirit brings the word of God to life. The spirit is the how it all happened. The word is the command for it to happen. The spirit is the how. Let's go to one of my favorite stories in in Luke, the story of the the, uh, virgin conception. Luke chapter 1, verse 31, we are told this. And behold, an angel says to Mary, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. There's the command. God has given a command. You will conceive. Mary asks a very appropriate question. How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel responds. Here's the answer to the how. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And if you do not hear an echo of Genesis 1-2, the Holy Spirit hovering, the Holy Spirit overshadowing, those are meant to be heard together. So the Holy Spirit is the how, and the means of the Holy Spirit is applying the Word of God. So here's why Genesis 1-2 is so important for us. The Spirit does the same with us. The Spirit does the same with us. He applies the gospel to our hearts. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12-3, no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now we all have gotten to the point where we know the difference between can and may. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. What that means is to truly know Jesus is Lord, to have that truly be a confession that has the integrity of you, requires the Holy Spirit to apply it to you. More. We recognize that the Spirit does the same with us because he sanctifies and strengthens us in the word. In the prophet Ezekiel chapter 36, as they were looking forward to the new covenant with Christ, Ezekiel told us about that covenant by saying this, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful 
to obey my rules. You see, it is when God puts his spirit in his people that the word that he speaks is able to be active and profitable and applied to our lives. The spirit brings the word to life in us. Let's go back to that woman. That woman came in here not knowing what she needed, but knowing she needed to be here. And all we did with her was pray. And in prayer, we prayed scripture. We prayed the story of the prodigal son. We prayed the story of God working all things together for the good of those who love him. We prayed for her to put her faith firmly here, not to stray. And at the end of that prayer, she wanted a Bible. We gave her three things. We gave her food, we gave her gas, and we gave her a Bible. And the last thing she said to me, this Bible is the most important thing I'm getting today. And she's right. The Holy Spirit's relationship to the word means this. If you want the Holy Spirit to powerfully transform you, to encourage you, comfort you, make you new, you need to put the word in you. You need to invest yourself in knowing the word because that is what the Holy Spirit uses to apply his life and sanctification to you. Listen to Psalm 3, or Psalm 1, 1 through 3. Behold, I'm sorry, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of God, and on his law he meditates Day and night, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its light leaf does not wither. In all things he does, he prospers. Do you see, when the word is planted in us, the Holy Spirit applies that and works that. The word meditates, that's like chewing caramel. Have you guys ever had a great piece of caramel? My mom makes caramel, and it is sin on a plate. And I am sinful when it's on a plate. <laughs> it is these cubes of just chewy, sugary molasses. And you put one of those in your mouth, and it takes a good 10 minutes to chew it down to get all of the sugars and flavors out of it, and be able to swallow. When the Bible tells us meditate, it's not saying give me one minute a day to read your favorite verse. It's saying chew on me like caramel. It says the word is like honey. Honey is sticky. You can't get it off your tongue quickly. You must allow it to be chewed and digested and savored. And when that is your practice with the word, the Holy Spirit is unleashed to apply that to its riches of your life. Third, third, the 
Holy Spirit works by being actively present. The Holy Spirit works by applying the Word of God. And third, and maybe most encouraging, the Holy Spirit completes what he starts. That's what Genesis 1 shows us. The creation week shows the Holy Spirit applying the Word of God to these initial conditions of formless and void, watery and dark, and bringing the creation to a place of perfection for the sake of his image bearers to live there and reflect his glory. I made a chart that I'd like to look at. I think this will help you connect verse 2 to the rest of the chapter. So verse 1, the material universe is created. Verse 2, we're told of these initial conditions of darkness, watery, formless, and empty. And then as you proceed through the creation week, as you proceed through those days, as each one of those initial conditions is resolved, we get this declaration, it is good. So the Holy Spirit, when God says, let there be light, creates the light, and God looks at the light and he says, it is good. And then when dry land appears on on day three, it is good. And then when vegetation shows up and and the creation is now in in the form of of habitation, God says it is good. It is no longer formless. And then when God fills each and every one of these domains, the, the sun, moon, and stars, the air, and the sea creatures, and land animals, good, 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 so that the initial condition of empty is resolved. And then when he creates man and looks at everything he has made, he looks at it and he says, very good. You see, it is the Holy Spirit taking the commands of God, applying it to this creation, and bringing back the praise of God, good, 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 very good. That is what the Holy Spirit is doing Everything it starts, it works until it gets the judgment good. He does the same for you. He does the same for you. Listen to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. God says that when you believe in the gospel, the Holy Spirit lives with you, and that is a tenant that you cannot get rid of because he has paid his down payment, and his down payment is good. It will never be taken away. And so when the Holy Spirit begins in you, the certainty is the Holy Spirit is going to finish you. As we read in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, the image of Christ, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. You are being transformed unfailingly because the Holy Spirit is in you. And finally, Paul can declare in prison, as he is looking at his ministry without his intentional care, he is able to say this, I am sure of this, Philippians 1.6, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day 
of Jesus Christ. This is great assurance. The Holy Spirit doesn't fail. The Holy Spirit doesn't quit. The Holy Spirit finishes what he begins. And if he has began in you, he will finish you in glory. If he is in you, you will stand before God without spot or blemish, and you will hear the words, Welcome, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And so I think about that woman on Thursday. She drove away to Alabama, who I believe lost on Monday. But at any rate, she drove away to Alabama. Will I see her again? Will I see that woman again? If the Spirit is in her, most definitely. And when I see her, just as I will see all of us and you will see me, we will be free from all sin and shame and grief. The Holy Spirit works in his creation and in us by being actively present, by applying the word of God, and by completing what he starts The reason why we can always hope, always know the end will be good, always trust that we will finish well, is that the Holy Spirit is in us. But that leaves the most pressing question for last. Do you have the Spirit in you? All that I have said is only true for those who have the Spirit. Let me read Ephesians 1.13 again. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. The Holy Spirit comes to those who believe in the gospel. Do you know Jesus Christ died for your sins, that he rose again? Is he living in you, and are you living out his truth? This is the key question. Everything that has been said hinges upon it. Do you know him? Is the Holy Spirit in you? Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been blessed by this sermon from River Community Church. We are a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana, whose purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 1030 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org.